Yeah! Yay! <laughs> there you go. We got there, we got there. You see, it wasn't that difficult. <laughs> that's what you say. Yeah. Oh, that's what your mama said. <laughs> yes. Oh, get wrecked. <laughs> Damn. Oh, boy. Welcome to the What's Your Baseline podcast. In this show, we talk about our experiences and lessons learned in enterprise architecture and business process management. What's Your Baseline is designed to be for everyone. Newbies who are just getting started with these topics, organizations who want to improve their EA and BPM groups and the value they get from it, as well as practitioners who want to get a different perspective and care about the discipline. Each episode will tackle different key topics, providing context, background, best practices, and stories from the road, inviting you to learn from our challenges and successes, and demonstrating key tools to help you set up your practice and get the most out of it. I'm your host, Roland Wold, and I'm joined today by my co-host, J.M. Erlinson. Hey, JM. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Roland. Today is actually a snow day up here in Canada. Were you aware those could still happen in this time of COVID? <laughs> no, I never guessed that. But having said that, we had a very weird winter uh, day today. So yesterday it was like in the teens Fahrenheit, so minus nine degrees Celsius. And then overnight it warmed up to the 40s, which meant the snow that fell became rain. And now everything is iced and it's black ice all Ooh. the place and, and whatnot it, it really stinks so yeah hard no middle middle uh, of january 2022 when we record this session and everybody's excited about winter <laughs> speaking of which being excited yeah i'm super excited because we have another guest in our show today we do um and and his name is kaspar jans who's styling in from the balmy netherlands uh and we're gonna talk about uh, change management <laughs> management of change um, with him, and uh, it will be a very interesting conversation, I hope. Welcome, Kasper. <laughs> Yay! Welcome, Hi, guys. Kasper. Thank you for being here. It's uh, my pleasure today. And yeah, we don't have snow in the Netherlands, by the way. I think the last time was about more than a decade ago. So I can still be a bit envious about the snow that you have. Oh, so, so where do you go for skiing if you uh, partake in that hobby? Well, if you would partake in that hobby, you would drive down to either south of Germany or Switzerland or Austria. I mean, that's about a six to 10 hour drive, that's depending on traffic. Still pretty nice, though. That's uh, that's not terrible. <laughs> no, it's, it's not terrible at all. Well, I see this is where you see the yellow license plates on the Dutch caravans, you know, clogging uh, the autobahns in winter. Yeah, but not in, not in the winter. <laughs> in the summer, yes. <laughs> Oh, well, well hey, Kasper, welcome. Um, Thank you. Maybe, maybe we just get started with a little bit of introduction so that our listeners know who we're talking with and why we're so excited to have you on the show. So maybe you just talk a little bit about yourself and, and tell our audience who you are. Yeah, sure. Uh, my pleasure. So uh, my name is Kasper. I think we established that. Um, I work for Software AG at the moment um, as a senior director for transformation solutions, which pretty much means that I advise and consult um, our major customers on the wonderful things that they can do with business process management in, in the widest sense possible. Um, but I think let's let's just dial back a couple of years. Um, before I joined Software AG, um, I spent almost 20 years in uh, manufacturing world, meaning that um, I worked for a global manufacturing company where I had, let's say, half of my time in the business as supply chain manager and procurement manager. And the other half, um, I was basically running around in the information universe, as I used to call it. So I was doing SAP projects, uh, auditing them, actually. Um, I was uh, managing a BPM center of excellence for a couple of years. Um, and that's where I also got in, in, 
let's say, in contact and got my experience with managerative change. Um, so that's going to be, uh, for me, it's going to be an exciting talk anyway. Well, I feel sorry for you. Oh, you're talking about <laughs> SAP projects. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that, that's a whole different story. Yeah, I think we all got our our blessings and uh, whatever bearings in, in these type of, of uh, projects, which are always interesting. Interesting oh, yeah. in inverted commas. Um, but, but having said that, um, so what were, when you look back, what were key experiences that moved you to move towards the process management discipline? Why, why did you choose that, quote unquote, profession? Um, well, I, it started in university, to be very honest. Um, when I graduated from uh, the uh, Eindhoven University of Technology, my thesis was all around process simulation. Um, and then um, I, I went to Ernst Young Consulting to do that project um, and, and they got me hooked on BPM, be, to be very honest. And then, then when, I, when I moved into that manufacturing company, um, the first project that they, that they put me on was a process harmonization and standardization process being supported by SAP. Um, so you can imagine they just threw me into the deep end um, and, and I liked the swimming in that pool and never stopped basically. Well, good that you didn't drown because otherwise we wouldn't have you here on our uh, wonderful yeah. little show. So, <laughs> but but isn't that how we do it all the time, right? Our experiences help shape what we do, and we, we find things we love. I mean, I, I feel like um, when I when I moved away from manufacturing engineering into process engineering, I was like, oh, isn't that something cool <laughs> to discover? Uh, and then you move from that into more things. And hey, listen, life life evolves. Isn't that beautiful? And speaking about life, tell me a little bit more about you know what you do outside of this. What what are your hobbies, interests, things you love? Any we call these bucket list items? We ask about this to every guest. Uh, yeah, what's yeah, on yeah, your sure. List? Uh, so um, in in my in my private life, um, I have a full time occupancy as a father of three kids. Um, they all have. Um, of course, attention, desires, and requirements. So I'm more, more than happy to fulfill those. Um, actually, one of my kids uh, plays sports on a fairly high level that takes quite some time driving him up and down to the to the practice grounds uh, and to games. Um, and besides that, I, I love uh, playing an occasional video game. Um, even, even though I'm pushing 50 almost, uh, I still like a game of Fortnite now and then. Um, and and right. I, I listen to music, watch movies a lot. Um, and if you talk about bucket list, there is one thing on my bucket list that I'm, I'm dying to do. Um, and that is, um, together with my wife, around Christmas, go to New York, go to Radio City Music Hall and see an episode of The Nutcracker dressed up in a tuxedo and, a, and anything posh. That, that, to me, sounds like such a great experience. That that's on my list to do yeah. and, and make sure that you wear a real tuxedo, not a Canadian tuxedo, right, JM? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> wait, wait, are you saying a Canadian tuxedo is just a Mountie uniform? Wow, okay. It's a okay. matching jeans pants with a matching jeans jacket. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're saying Canada's stuck in the 70s. Is that right? Uh, oh, I, I mean, I'm I not going to disagree. Well, our listenership in Canada will now drop, you know, <laughs> <laughs> significantly. <laughs> oh, listen. Let, let, me help you, let me help you there. One of my favorite actors comes from Canada. So um, let, let's leave it at that. Ooh, now now it's audience. It's your time. Lock in your answers now. What is Casper's favorite Canadian actor? We'll reveal that at the end of the show, or we'll yeah. forget who knows. <laughs> well, let's talk about actually getting to the show here. Um, it's really it's such a wonderful thing to have you on here and to bring your expertise and context behind the management of change or change management. I mean, tell me those terms 
are not interchangeable, even though they're the words yeah. are the same. Tell me about management of change versus change management. What, what do we mean yeah, by these that's, terms? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, to me, they are two sides of the same coin, or, or if you want, the, the, yin, the yin and the yang, uh, when it comes to transformation in businesses. Um, and, and there are a lot of people that have their own definition of it. Uh, so I'll, I'll stick to the one that I got used to um, in my manufacturing uh, days. But change management typically deals with the, um, I would say, the soft side of things. So the, the behavior, the culture, um, anything that has to do with, with people um, and management of change is um, a, a process that you that you have to make sure that whatever needs to change in the things that you can, I would say, record. And um, so that it's the hard side of things. So you talk about the, the processes and the applications um, and the IT systems that you have um, and how do you deal with, with change. And, and obviously those two, they um, are interconnected. Uh, because at the moment that you start making changes to either a process or an application, sometimes you need to have people adapt their behavior as well. Um, but they have very different um, centers of gravity. They have very different focal points, I would say. Uh, but that, to me, and, and the bridge between, by the way, uh, it, just to, to cross that bridge in, in the same time, is communication. Um, if, if you don't communicate and you, you focus only on one, the other one will fail. Yeah, and we're going to have an extra episode, uh, which will actually uh, air two weeks after this episode that we're currently recording with you, where we will cover the people side of, of org change management uh, and, oh, cool. and what does that mean, you know, uh, as, nice. a little, as a little preview. Um, but having said that, when we look at the quote unquote hard side of change, Casper, uh, what different types do you see there? What different types of change are we actually talking about? Um, so normally when I, when I talk about management change, um, and it depends a little bit on who you're talking to, but very often either they look at process changes, so changes to business processes or maybe to, to policies or, or roles. Um, and on the other hand, when you talk more to the IT side of the, of the organization, you talk about the changes into um, applications. Um, and, and to me, so process changes one, application changes is two, and of course the combination of the two is, is a third type of, uh, of change that you can see where you both change a process and an application at the same time. Um, and and, and those, those three types of, of management change processes or, or change types actually, um, they all have a, a slightly different way of, uh, of dealing with them. In, in my experience. So, so what is the problem then with that? Because obviously change is inevitable and, and things will change, but where, wh why, why is this a topic? Where do organizations have a problem with managing the change to come back well, to our let, title? Let, let me ask you a question then. Um, have you recently been in contact with companies that still have a whole battery of people sitting on typewriters outputting actual paper and putting it in a in a cupboard somewhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, not, not yeah, quite very, so much. Very right? unlikely. Very unlikely. So that means that whatever organizations do nowadays is being supported by a system mm -hmm. or multiple systems. And, and that means that um, at the moment that you start making changes, um, it, it, it's a bit, I would say, a, a tad bit naive to just look at one of the, uh, the aspects of it. And when you look at the processes, you always need to at least make the determination if the application needs to be changed as well. And, and the same goes, of course, the other way around. Um, and, and just as a, as a small example, um, when I was working in this manufacturing company, we had these um, 
we had a change request that said the logo, the company logo needed to change from the left-hand side to the right-hand side of the, of the invoice. That seems like such a straightforward change in SAP, right? You, you just, you just adjust the template and it, 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 um, it outputs on the other side of the, of the picture. Um, and if, if that was it, we would have run into major problems um, going into uh, one of the countries that we actually manufactured in where there was an obligation to have it on the left-hand side. Um, so we, we moved it mm. to the right-hand side and the first invoice that came out in that country was already an incident. Um, would, if, would you have done a proper impact analysis um, where you also included the process and, and many of its variants, you might have caught that before you actually started making changes. So they had to go back in again and, and add that conditional, that, that part of conditional logic um, to make sure that the, the logo was printed on the right-hand side, depending on the country it was printed in. Yeah, so we're talking about the, the actual value of the change. We're not talking about people being upset that everything nowadays no. seems to go through a ticketing system. And if you're not a Jira master and, and close your tickets, you're on the, the bad list, the naughty list. Yeah, well, I think a lot of companies still manage their change processes in Excel, to be very honest. Mm -hmm. um, it, Ticketing systems are being used, but very often only in the IT side of things, because that's where it's most often used, uh, in my experience. And that means that application changes, which are very often, let's say, the um, owned by IT, they typically get through that ticketing process pretty nicely. Um, but process change, on the other hand, they, they can originate anywhere in the, in the organization, and, and they don't automatically end up in these kind of ticketing systems. So the question is, do you have transparency in what's going on in your organization anyway um, because of that lack of consolidation. Right. And you're talking about consolidation. I mean, you're kind of alluding to this idea of different types of change. Um, so mm -hmm. let's let's walk through that because, you know, we've talked about the word management. <laughs> now let's talk about the oh, word yeah. change. Um, what does change look like to you? What sorts of changes are there? Um, what should people be sort of bucketing in order to address that with the types of management of change that they're going to employ? Yeah, so um, I, I think we typically un, um, distinguish about four types of change. Um, and, and the first one is the easiest one, I would say. That's what we call editorial changes. So imagine that you have a, a whole bucket of documentation because that's ultimately what we're talking about. So you documented the way that you work, you documented the way that your IT landscape looks like, and all of a sudden there needs to be a change. So an editorial change means that you simply have a typo or you need to change your word somewhere. It doesn't change anything to the, the way it's working. Um, so the straight, very straightforward change. The, the second type of change is then the process change, um, where you say, listen, we're, this is the process that we have now, we need to make a change to it, but it doesn't seem to have an impact on applications. Uh, and the other one is, of course, the application variant of that. So there's an application change um, that needs to be done, a, a security upgrade that has no effect on the process that the application is supporting. And then the last uh, the last type of change is the, the combination of the two. And that's the most, uh, the most elaborate one, of course, where you need to look at both changing the process as well as changing the application. And when you talk about managing change, so, so you, you stop at the point of the person in, in what you're referring to. So when you say process change, and really what I think we, we, we kind of see this in the same thing as a practice change. Um, those process changes are being enacted by people, but you wouldn't uh, use this discipline to feed into learning and development directly. That would be a separate conversation, right? Yeah, that would be a separate conversation. And um, so 
your, your, your process change obviously can have an impact on the way that people practice it and, and, and do it. Uh, and that could be an outcome of your management of change process, but it's typically not. Well, it, it, it could be included in what you call the, 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 the post-transfer activities of a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, wonderful. And it's good, it's good to see those things uh, called out here. And so we're, we're not going to look at the learning development side today. We're just going to be looking at how yeah. that change inside. Okay. And and Roland, you, you had a question here. Yeah. So so I'm curious now, and, and I completely understand, obviously, your four different types of changes. Uh, when I think about our listenership, typically these are architects, these are process managers, you know, people who are tasked with implementing that process. Um, mm-hmm. How what how do you see the role of these individuals in that process? Is it something that, and to make it very very clear on both sides, is it something if you have a process change where you just say, oh yeah, business unit, you figure it out. You know, here you have two hundred grand to hire your six sigma uh, lean person, and you just make it better, and and I buy my my solution. Or you go back and say, no, 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 very strict governance here. We need to have a task force who's looking for that little change that, that you want to do, and it's all centralized. But when I think about the, the audience of our podcast here, how do you see the role of architecture in this change process? Uh, th- that's a very interesting one. Um, and I think in, in order to, to answer that one, uh, I need to add one extra dimension into this equation, and that's the uh, what I call process classification. Not all processes within organizations are equal. Um, some are more equal than others, so to speak, um, just to quote a famous book. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, yeah. So th- uh, there's two different types of processes I would say that I very often use. So you have either differentiating processes or non-differentiating processes. And hmm. the differentiating processes or, or, or core processes are very often being centralized, standardized, put into shared service center modes. Um, and the non-differentiating ones typically end up with the ownership within the business unit that actually has that, that process. Oh. Now, when you talk about management of change, um, I would certainly suggest or advise or recommend, however strong you want to put it, I, I leave that up to the, to the listener, um, to centralize at least the intake and the impact analysis of changes. So it doesn't matter what kind of process you're actually changing. It doesn't matter if it's a small change or a large change. Make sure it's being centralized via that one process that you have. You can use that ticketing system for it if you want and say, listen, all of the, all of the change requests, whether they come from incidents or from Lean Six Sigma improvement projects, they all come in into one process. And then you have a a cross-functional group of people, it doesn't need to be big. Uh, we, we typically used five different roles that would come together, look at the change request, and then within, uh, we had a threshold, but within 48 hours, business hours in this case, and uh, sorry, real hours, so within two days, they would render judgment on the change request to see if it was feasible and desirable. Um, and, and if that was so, then it would continue throughout the design and build and deliver phase where then you would see that difference between differentiating and non-differentiating processes. Um, but just to get back to that point, Roland, um, a process manager or, or a process owner very often plays a role in the uh, at the end of the impact analysis if that group says, yes, we will um, we can do this change. We think it's it's good. We think it's useful. This will be the cost estimate. This will be the impact. And then the process owner has to render judgment on that to see if yeah, he has to give a go or no go. 
So, uh, yeah, just to, uh, to make it clear, what are those five roles that you just mentioned? Ah, there we go. Yeah. So that all, there's always the, the requester of the change because that person obviously knows what he's asking for. Um, then there is the uh, a central process expert for that particular functional domain. So if, if you talk about um, a purchase order activity, it's the procure to pay process expert from a centralized function. So that's the person that oversees the whole procurement area for the entire company. And then there is always a finance expert because in the end, everything ends up with money, whether you like it or not. There is a, an IT expert to make sure that you have the impact on the application side covered. And finally, there is a risk expert, risk and control, because in, in the company I come from, that was really important part to make sure that whatever you did, did not create any problems, for instance, with uh, the um, um, four eyes principle or with your um, authorization profiles. Uh, because very often when you talk about, for instance, role changes because of other authorizations, you need to have that risk check in there as well. So those five would always, and, and the, 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 the composition, of course, would depend on the type of change that would come in. Um, mm -hmm. And, and they, those five would sit together It could take 15 minutes, it could take three hours, but the, 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 the mandate that they had and the, the objective that they had was very simple. You look at this and you don't come out until there's white smoke. I did have a question about this in particular on the effort required, because what you're talking about feels like it's something, and I, if I was you know, sitting as an organization or a practitioner listening to you say this, it feels like a lot of additional burden you're not thinking about today. We have an expression though in the podcast, you're going to pay for it somehow. Yeah. So w what's the business case you often make to say, okay, like, let's regiment this and let's centralize yeah. this because... I'm assuming right now this is kind of getting done, but only halfway in BUs. Yeah, and and the the rationale behind it is typically what we call the rules of ten, uh, meaning that whenever you let a, an error exist in the process, every step that process takes multiplies the effort you need to make to correct that effort by ten. And um, so what we really uh, went for in that case was say, listen, we need to solve certain problems as soon in the process as possible. Now, what, what did we see with management of change throughout the years is that if you don't do your impact analysis right, you're going to pay for it in the development or in the design of the change. And then it will cost you much more effort to correct that compared to doing it in the impact analysis right at the start of the process. Yeah, but I'm switching heads now. Kasper, I'm, I'm agile. I don't need all that stuff. You, you're forcing me to do to make those big decisions up front. You know, you block five resources to do that impact analysis. I, I don't want to do this. I'm agile. I switch on a dime. Um, so, yeah. what, what is your opinion on on that attitude? Yeah, it's. Uh, I would say it's based on a myth that um, when you when you work in an agile manner, that you don't need to document anything anymore, and that you don't need to go through proper change management. Uh, it, it simply means that you um, you take small little strides to get there with intermediate products or solutions, uh, and and that that's a way to get there faster compared to waterfall uh, methods of developing. Uh, but you you still and and agile itself is also very often um, it's it's in the DevOps uh, realm I would say. And what I'm talking about the impact analysis is much more on the functional side before it even gets to being agile. First, you need to know. What do I need to change, and and do I need to change? Question mark. And what will the impact be? And and do mm -hmm. we do we accept the impact? 
And then once we accept it, how do we design a solution? And at the moment that you say, okay, now we're going to design, design and develop a solution, you can work in agile or you can work in waterfall, whatever. I, I don't, I don't mind. Uh, but it, it, ha it, it comes into the process way later than the, the impact analysis side. Yeah. So basically what you're describing is helping the product owner as the agile role uh, to set up the scope. Uh, exactly. Help the product owner to determine what should go on his list. And then it will go into epics and stories and, and all those other formats. That makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, this is getting a little bit more into the how-to, and we're going to cover that in our next section. Um, so for our first break in the show, we'd love to leave you, our dear listeners, with a question to ponder while you listen to some wonderful music to, to get you in the wintry spirit. Uh, and that is thinking about you and your organization. So what kind of changes are you currently going through, and where are you in this process? Um, how is change organized at your organization, uh, and how are you involved in that? So I want you to take the time to frame that conversation, ask yourself those questions so we can better understand where you connect and how we can bring this all back together. We'll leave you for a moment and come back with our thoughts and the how on the management of change. Welcome back to the second segment of the show today with Kasper talking about the management of change. And uh, starting with that, Kasper, I'm pretty sure there's some form of process that's underlying a management of change, um, either one of the four changes that you mentioned up in our first segment. Can you talk a little bit about what that process looks like? Yeah, uh, of course. Um, and I think the, the, the first step in these in this management change process typically is capturing the change request and the change requirements. Um, and then again, they can come from multiple various sources. Of course, you have incidents, you have um, regulatory changes by your government. Um, I mean, I live in the Netherlands, the Dutch government likes to change the rules from time to time and then expect you to very quickly uh, process that into your um, application and process landscape. <laughs> um, and then at the moment that you captured it, the first thing that you that you would like to do is that impact analysis, making sure that you mm -hmm. un understand truly what is the actual change and what type of impact might we expect on other processes, on other applications, um, in anything that you already have on the radar, so to speak. Um, and, and, and I think this particular step also underwrites the, the importance of having that single source of truth repository that many companies now working on, where you have your processes and your application landscape brought together. Your enterprise architecture really is key here. Um, once you get past that impact analysis stage, um, the next one that you do basically mm -hmm. is design. So if, if, you, if you come to the conclusion that, yes, we do want to do this change, it's, it seems desirable, um, it seems effective, uh, the first thing you're going to do is, okay, so how are we going to solve this high level um, and, and what kind of cost estimate would be attached to it. And, and once your, your process governance has rendered judgment on the cost estimate, you can move on to the, the last two phases, which are typically, or last three actually. So you build, you test and you deliver. Uh, I think these are very straightforward standard uh, DevOps stages. And, and whether you do this uh, at Waterfall or Agile, I mean, that's up to the organization um, as long as you go from the uh, approved design and make sure it actually ends up in production 
with the people being trained in the fact that there is a change. Yeah, but I think you I mean, you missed one more step, right? Which is basically the measurement step or the analysis step afterwards. You know, once you, you went live with your change and then whatever, three months, six months after, you want to know, did we accomplish what we wanted yeah, to do? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But And, and that's, um, that's a, a, an interesting topic because that's typically where process mining comes in. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and if you... This is the control phase that you have in your DMIC from Lean Six Sigma. Right? So you, 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 you implemented an improvement or a change. Um, how do you make sure that you actually reap the benefits from it? Um, and, and that's obviously the, the sustainable, I would say, control phase that you have at the end. So you're right, you're right about that, Roland. And I, I want to ask a question about uh, the decision-making process in here, because um, it sounds like to me that in your th third point, the design of change, there is at some point in time a decision around financial outcomes and impacts. How do you build the business case in this framework? I mean, is there a business case required to be developed? Who's developing that and what are they using? Yeah, so that I think that depends a little bit on the on the severity of the change. Um, if you're talking about small changes, um, very often what you see within organizations is that each of the process owners, they have their, their annual change budget. So they say, for instance, um, mm. in, in the company where I came from, the, the process owners had about 200K of change budget. So any any type of change that they thought were good, they could be funded from that budget. Now, like discretionary funding. Yeah, discretionary funding. And then if you had really large changes that affected multiple functions or multiple applications, um, it would become a topic for the process governance body. So you would mm. you would make a cost estimate. You say, listen, this change is gonna is gonna cost us about 500k, uh, but we think the the additional benefits in the in the long run uh, in a one and three year scenario uh, would be a million plus. Uh, I'm just making up some numbers. Sure, sure. Um, and and that would then be sent to the uh, responsible process owners. And if it was if it was severe enough or big enough, it would end up with the process governance board actually, which also had the CFO in there. Um, and then they would render judgment on, uh, do we want this, yes or no? And then they would make the funds available from other means um, to make this happen. Right. So so the third phase then does have sort of a governance side to it. It's kind of design and, and govern the change. And and in, in particularly when we're taking a look at like moving things upwards, some of these, these things are kicked off with a requirement for change. It doesn't really matter what you want. Like you're talking about regulatory requirements, you need to change, and so the governance of it is to ensure the change occurs. Yeah. But there are some changes that are proposed that are, you know, not cosmetic, but are like are nice to have. Mm -hmm. How do you balance with the approach when you're looking at change that must happen versus change that probably should happen? Yeah. So that that typically happens right at the capturing of the of the changes, because at the moment you capture a change requirement, um, you you know where it's coming from. Um, so if it, if it is coming from uh, regulatory reasons, then very often it comes in via your corporate risk department or your corporate regulatory affairs department, um, and they already tell you this is a must do. Oh, and, and then yeah, yeah. Budget, budgeting becomes really simple because they pay for it on a corporate level. <laughs> um, I see. If, if, it's, if, it's, yeah, if it's coming from a project or a person. Um, so you have, a, you have a person in a business group that says, listen, I have this great idea how to make procure to pay much more efficient. Um, that requirement would then go into uh, the change coordinator. That's a role that I haven't mentioned yet, but there is one person that actually looks at the captured change requirements and determines in which little buckets should this go and which 
group of people do I need to put together to do the impact analysis? And that person would also then render, I would say, take a first guess around and, and based on experience, say, listen, well, this change might indeed be very interesting. So we might promote this into a more generic change for the entire company compared to this is a very business group specific change that might be dealt with by the business group itself. And so that's that's a, that's the point very early on in the process where you do that. And, and I think just very briefly coming back to that, the most important things that you need to do with manager of change is to figure out what kind of change am I looking at and how do I want to solve mm. that? And you do that as early on in the process as you can to make sure that the rest of the process is a very efficient, lean and mean delivery machine. Well, that even rhymes. <laughs> a lean and mean delivery machine. I like it. So we can't end the podcast right now because this is the closing <laughs> word, you know? No, just kidding. Um, Kasper, this sounds like a very complex thing, right, to manage, you know, because everybody in the organization will have some ideas how to do this. And, and I know that people implement ticketing systems for this purpose. And, and I know that I'm one of the guys who hates these ticketing systems, you know, with a vengeance, because they are not pretty and not flexible. What have you seen in the past, how people manage those changes, especially on an enterprise Uh, wide perspective. And maybe the second part of the question, what would be your ideal scenario, how to manage those changes going forward? Yeah, so um, things I've seen range from um, little Excel files where they where they record what they're actually trying to change, um, all the way up to a centralized ticketing system where everything comes in. Um, and that's, that's the one repository for change that they have. Um, and, and you could, you could, basically say, listen, I have this repository of change, which is your, your ticketing system or your collection of Excel files. Although, of course, a collection of Excel files is not nearly as in control as a ticketing system can be, even though you might not like them. And I, sure, I'm not a big fan of them, but they do serve a good purpose when it comes to management of change. Um, if you look at the, the ideal situation, um, I would say that it, it is a, um, and, and you describe it as a rather complex process, um, yes, it is, but change is complex nowadays. Organizations have become so complex, uh, most of them, we're talking about major corporations here. We're not, we're not talking about the, the, the small and medium enterprises uh, at the moment, at least I'm not. Um, if you look into the larger organizations, they are mm -hmm. complex. Uh, and, uh, and you need to manage that complexity. Uh, and and you, you cannot do that with a very simple process. Uh, I mean, the steps I described seem simple enough. Um, and the execution of it, once it runs a bit like an oiled machine, um, is also not that complex, uh, to be very honest. But you do need to have um, transparency on what is it that I'm working on and what is it that I'm going to be delivering in the next batch or in the next release or maybe even continuously. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about transparency, I mean, you're implying the need for multiple different parties, multiple teams to be brought into sync around this. And you've talked a little bit about some of the roles and talked a little bit about some of like the, the generalized teams, like you talked about the change counselor or the, uh, the change evaluation board or however you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But talk to me how this fits into an organization. How do you set up your organization to accept this type of change 
and change process into its very fabric because it feels like this applies across the entire company whether or not it's a single change as an editorial change at the lowest level uh, and to a sweeping pivot for the organization how do you accept that and how do you set yourself up for success so the um i think the main premise here is that um, an organization needs to understand that process management is um wider than just documenting some processes um, it also includes the whole governance part, and that includes management of change as well. Um, so it, if, if done properly, organizations already have a process governance body somehow. So they have a group of executives that own the processes that meet up regularly to discuss problems that they have in and around process management. Um, and, and for me, the, the, the application landscape is intrinsically linked to your process management part. It might not be completely part of the governance because they very often have their own governance within the IT, uh, the, the IT industry, um, but it's certainly linked to it. So at the moment that you say, I already have a process governance structure in place, um, it becomes a little bit easier to also, um, I would say, persuade the organization to say, we now need to consolidate that management of change process and we need to structure it a little bit because there, there is not many additional roles that you need. There's that one change coordinator role that you need to have, but the, the, the process experts and the IT experts and the finance experts, they're already there. Those, those are existing roles that you have either on corporate level or, or in the business group. You simply bring them together. Mm. Um, and, and just as an example, at the moment that... Um, at the moment that we were running, and I had that role as change coordinator for a couple of years when I set up that whole process at, at my previous company. And the one thing I did is I had a weekly short meeting with um, representatives from all of the functions that we had. So I, I, I had a representative for the finance part, the marketing and sales part, the procurement part, the risk, the IT part. And we would sit together and we simply would go through the list of all of the open change requests that we had and in which part of the process they actually were, just to make sure that we stayed on top of that transparency that I mentioned. And, and we could always say, well, we have changes that run not quick enough. We, we need to accelerate those. Uh, it, it can go at a cost of that one that might be held back a little bit, but we, we need to figure out how to, how to bring these changes into production um, as efficient as we can. Um, so complex, uh, it looks like that. Once it's up and running, it's not complex at all. It's simply an operation that you need to run. It's sort of a shared service, service actually. Right. So, so <laughs> it seems like you're saying when you make a change and the the need for change, the transparency of change, um, the conversation around change, an ongoing activity, mm -hmm. rather than the surprise baby. Oh my God, we need to change something. Yes. Something's breaking. Something's going wrong. <laughs> when you make it a a topic of conversation, you're much better prepared because you have people and you're much better able to execute because you have processes already in the structure. I, I, I love it. I love it. So that's that's some fantastic advice for a lot of the folks out there. If change is a surprise, if change is a is a panic moment of urgency, then it's already maybe a little too late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So set yourselves up now for success so that when the change comes and it is a coming, then you're ready to address it with your whole organization in alignment. Yeah, and, and, and that transparency seems like a really important part of that. And, and there's one thing uh, I like to add that because I like the way that you rephrase it. Um, at the moment that you're implementing a change, and you notice that you're going to have an, an unexpected side effect anywhere else in the organization, 
then, yeah. then that's a clear sign that you do that you're not doing your impact analysis or you're not doing it right. <laughs> One of the two. Um, Surprise! Someone else is going through pain because I wanted to change. I mean, I'm, I'm not Ooh. that naive that I think that you can that you can predict everything, but you can sure. you can predict ninety percent of what. It's going to happen when you change something um, at the moment that you have a clear view on your processes and how they link to your application landscape. Mm -hmm. And actually questions for you then along those lines, because you're obviously offering incentives in some way to other departments to give you information. Um, how do you bring those people into the fold? How do you convince them as part of your process that they need to be involved? Is it a mandate? Um, is it an, an offering of information? Is it simply that you've established a practice and those relationships are strong enough to sustain you as you go through this process? I think it's a combination of the first two. Um, of course, you need to have a mandate uh, because ultimately you're, you're putting activities on top of the roles that people are already playing. And so they, they need to be made aware that they're going to have additional responsibilities and maybe something else has been taken away from them so it, it still stays manageable. So that, that is one. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's more important, I think, is that at the moment that you start collaborating with the different functions like IT and finance and risk and, and the, the function itself, um, you provide transparency to all of them, which makes their work more predictable. Uh, and more predictable means that they can do it in the end with less people. Um, so it, it's the, the information exchange will help them become more effective. Yeah, very good point, Kasper. But the question that I have is, well, how do you organize this? And, and one example that I'd like to bring up is all those small IT changes that you have, you know, and, and I've seen IT organizations having their own change board for this because they are tasked with implementing what different groups come to them and say, oh, yeah, do this, do this, do this. And I'm a little bit afraid that they lose the big picture overview of all those little changes, which can accumulate to obviously bigger problems there. But how do you how have you seen this in the past? Yeah, so specifically with those those little, oh, I would say low level IT issues and, and, and changes that you need to make. Um, I think that's something that's that really stays within the IT part. Uh, they do have change boards, and depending a little bit on how they work. Um, but what you see there, there's two things to it. So I, either in the change board, they decide that a certain change has a bigger impact than just a local one, um, and then they bump it up to the to the management of change process that is more centralized. Or um, if they simply fix it. Uh, for instance, if a, if a router in your network mal malfunctions, you go ahead and either replace it or you fix it. And if, if such an incident occurs multiple times, it's typically promoted into a problem. Um, and then from the problem, you're going to get a root cause investigation. And that might actually trigger a change request that ends up in the MOC process um, that you're then going to uh, deal with it from a more centralized perspective. So I, I would certainly say all the really low-level detail stuff that is not impacting anything else than the very local situation is something that, for instance, the IT department can handle themselves pretty well. Um, so you, you need to have a little, you need to have a certain threshold in there uh, above which you're going to send it up to the MOC process. And, and that's a, the question I, I had about the, the people part of things, because I, I know we're not going to be talking about change management, but how do you enable people to see change as part of their daily and to, to put them in the right mindset for this kind of practice and process, are you giving them the power to manage smaller changes and, and as a result, they feel like they're more involved with the change process? 
So I think there you need to make a bit of a distinction between um, end users on one hand that have typically no interest in change management whatsoever. They just want to do their work. And, and that's absolutely perfect. And then there is, let's say, the, sub, the subject matter experts in that in that group. And those are the people that really look for the process improvements and the optimization of whatever it is that they're doing. Um, and, and these people typically are well aware of the fact that, that you need to change. Um, and, and you can, of course, help them by giving them... Um, giving them good arguments and, and make a change process or a management change process as effective as possible to make sure that the end user is certainly not bothered with it too much, but that at a certain point in time that an end user does need to change, that they have all of the ammunition that they need, those subject matter experts to say, okay, dear end user, this is going to change. This is the way that you did it. This is the way that you're going to be doing it. Uh, and let's have a training session on it. And, and we typically call that uh, a part of the post-transfer tra- post activities, the PTAs. Um, and, and then you, one of the things that you do is you train people if needed, uh, or you just communicate the change to them and let them decide how they want to deal with it. It makes, makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I'm actually also interested in, in a, another component of this, um, because it's just besides the people, you're creating a lot of collateral. And you know, sort of that's the uh, yeah <laughs> that's the they call it the sort of the collateral damage of change <laughs> is you create a bunch of stuff. Um, but one of the things that I, I'm interested in is is what format that collateral takes. So as part of this change process, what deliverables are expected out of these different phases? Um, what form do they take? Um, and how are they shared and consumed? Yeah, so it, that depends a little bit on how your organization has actually documented the way it works. So let's, right. let's take a basic scenario where they have PowerPoints and, uh, and, and Visios on, on the SharePoint drive. Well, then one of the deliverables that you need to, need to create as, as a result of a process change is an updated version of that PowerPoint or Visio. Um, but and, and there's a lot of, and we can go into a whole different podcast on the things that that can end up in. Uh, so, so we're not going <laughs> yeah. to be doing that. But if you have, a, let's say, a more ideal situation where you already have a BPM platform uh, like Aris that says, well, I have all my processes uh, documented properly, uh, including the links to roles and risks and applications, <clears throat> then you simply would need to have a, an updated process model as a collateral to make sure that you reflect the things that actually have been changed. From the IT side of things, you very often talk about uh, technical design specifications and functional um, uh, change uh, specifications that need to be updated in whatever form they are documented in. That could be Word documents, it could be in in systems like maybe um, ServiceNow or Jira, whatever you have. But you need to make sure that whatever you're changing is actually reflected in the existing documentation. And you need to do that before you bring the change live. And that's a very, I stress that point a little bit, simply because of the fact that um, if you don't do that before the change is delivered, you need to do it afterwards. And then different priorities will emerge very quickly and it never gets done. Well, which I think is, is a problem in itself. And I've worked on projects where we were looking at those changes, you know, and, and from my experience, if you just say, hey, write it down in words and save it on SharePoint, and we have that very elaborate structure they are by project, by year, whatever your, your structuring is, I noticed there's a lot of outdated information there and nobody finds it and whatnot. So the, the one thing that I like in these situations is when people start using wikis and the assumption mm-hmm. is, well, all those changes that we have, they're part of the change documentation that we have. 
right? And that could yep. be then whatever, a link in your process model to a wiki page or a link in your, your Jira to that wiki page, right? And uh, I'm mm -hmm. a big believer in, in those DevOps ideas of you build it, you own it. Uh, and make people responsible for, yeah, you, you build it. Now you maintain your, your documentation and you manage your change so that two years down the road or six months down the road, we know why we did those changes and don't forget it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. Um, well, if we take a little bit of a, of a helicopter approach here, so we, we're going to go up a little bit. At the moment, that as an organization, you say, listen, process management is the way that I use to streamline and uh, my, my process management and execute my processes, um, management of change is there to make sure that whatever you have documented in your repository actually stays up to date. And, and whether you use links to wiki pages, that's, that can absolutely work fine. Um, whether you have documents that you have attached into your process models or into your um, IT application landscape, that can also work. Um, that really doesn't matter too much as long as you understand that Whatever you've documented on how you work, you need to keep that up to date. And that's where management change comes in. Yeah, agreed. And the other thing we talked about a little bit earlier, and I wanted to make sure we loop back on it, besides the documentation that's coming out of what you're doing, is also the loop back of information that's coming out of the run of your system. So, I mean, we, we talked about this, and I think it's this kind of an edge case, but that's process mining. Yeah. Um, that's both for the initialization of the need for change and also for the check back um, for things like compliance and for business case um, satisfaction and things like that. Where does this fit into that, that story of process mining and how have you seen process mining um, support detection of patterns and trigger the needs for change, like become an actor in this process? Yeah, um, so process mining indeed has a couple of different roles to play. Um, if, if you already have process mining up and running in your operational systems, it can give you a lot of insight in where do you want to make improvements. And typically as a result of an improvement, you're going to have a change left or right. Um, but more interestingly, uh, I would say for this discussion today, uh, this conversation is if you apply process mining to your management of change process, you're going to get very valuable insight in the way that certain changes run through the whole process because it also captures the the involvement of all the different parties in management of change it's not just the corporate level or the it folks it's also the business group that initiates the, the change because they also have activities in that process and um, so as as a, as a quick example um, when i ran the management of change process in in, in my previous company we added process mining to it. So we connected the SAP systems to it. We connected the SAP solution manager to it. We put the information from the ticketing system, that was in this case a Remedy from BMC, into it. Um, and we quickly found out that, yes, changes did take a long time to be delivered. And the business groups were complaining about it. But the main root cause for the long lead times actually were the business groups themselves because they took very long times in signing the signing off on the cost estimate or actually executing the unit the user acceptance testing so the uat testing um, and, yeah. and once we made that transparent um they stopped complaining so that was good uh, <laughs> and they started acting as a first benefit well, and they started acting quicker so the lead time also went back so we went back from nine months on average to about three and a half weeks uh, after a series of improvements to the moc process um and and 
that makes you, and I come back to that term, as a business, that makes you much more agile because you now have the capability to much quicker respond to changes because you can you can process them quicker throughout your process and application landscape. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's quite impressive to whatever, cut it to a third uh, over time. I can imagine there were a lot of um, unhappy people on the way to get there, you know, because they had to change how they do things. But it was appreciated. So, so, and a part of that was also going back from a, a semi-annual or a, a biannual delivery release into continuous delivery. That helped a lot, of course. But it, it was the, the predictability for the business groups on knowing exactly where my change is and when can I expect it. That was the biggest benefit that they indicated afterwards. And so we now know what to expect so we can organize ourselves for it at the moment it comes. Well, that is a very good segue, Kasper, to the questions that I have to our audience listening to this segment of our show. So please think about what's your next step with change? How can you work in your organization in partnership with your change team? I'm going to leave you alone for a couple of seconds and we're going to play some nice music and then we're going to come back and close out the show. All right. Thanks so much, folks. And hopefully you've had a chance over the course of the last hour or so to really reflect on what it means to become part of the management of change, what's necessary for the management of change, and why it's so important that we manage change effectively. And thank you so much to our wonderful guest, Casper, who has done an incredible job of guiding us through this really essential process. Now, Roland, I know you have a couple more questions for him before we, we go away. Why don't you take it away? Yeah, so first of all, Kasper, also thank you from my side. I think a very interesting conversation that we had, and I appreciate uh, you being on the show. Having said that, where can people listen to our show today, find you and reach out to you and, and continue the conversation with you? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, first of all, it was my pleasure to be here. I enjoyed it very much. Um, so if, if you're trying to find me, um, you can, of course, go to LinkedIn, look up my name and, and connect to me. Um, I'm, I'm always open to, uh, to connect to people. Um, you can find me on Twitter, um, where I frequently tweet around the world around BPM. Um, just ignore the Dutch tweets. They're much more personal, I think. <laughs> and then uh, and finally, of course, I, I read um, and I write a weekly blog on the arrowscommunity.com on the BPM blog section. Um, where I think you will have a link somewhere around Roland for that. Um, and that, that's where you can find me. And you can always reach out to me um, via one of these three platforms and, and more than happy to engage in any kind of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And we definitely will put the links into our additional information section of the show notes so that you don't have to take notes while driving um, and getting to the right place. Um, If somebody reaches out to you, Casper, uh, what is the, the topics that you're offering to them or, or what would be conversations that you would like to have with, with people? Yeah, so the, the, the conversation I typically focus on are what are the, uh, the, the, the things you can do with process management in general uh, and also management of change more in particular, of course, because it's, to me it's part of BPM um, and, and how we can support you with that. Um, and, and it can range from strategy to implementation to rollout, uh, whatever you like. Um, I'll, I'll more than happy to have that conversation. 
Well, thank you so much again. This was a lot of fun and another thank you, but this time to our wonderful listeners. Thank you so much to everyone for loving and supporting the What's Your Baseline podcast. We're watching our numbers go up and up and up of listenership and it really feels good to be connecting with our industry uh, and some wonderful listeners who are part of our community. So thank you again. Please reach out to us. Uh, you can find lots of information at whatsyourbaseline.com, but you can even email us at hello at whatsyourbaseline.com. Or if you're listening to this on Anchor, you can leave us a voice message, which is great. We can hear your wonderful voices along with our own. And of course, please make sure you leave a review and a rating in your podcatcher of choice. That helps us to find more loving ears for our next podcast show. And if you want to find all the show notes and lots of links, tons of great thought, go to whatsyourbaseline.com slash episode 16, where you'll find all the information about this episode. And of course, once again, whatsyourbaseline.com for everything you might need around the whole transformation of enterprise architecture and business process. Well, thanks again to everyone for being here. Thank you so much to Casper for, for joining us. And as always, I've been J.M. Erlinson. I'm Casper Jans. I'm Roland Volt. And we'll see you in the next one.